0: There are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Dentist Barney Clark was the first recipient of an artificial heart, while the album Thriller was released on the first day of the month, kicking off what would eventually become the biggest commercial juggernaut of all time musically. Coach Paul Bear Bryant ended his career as the coach of one of the winningest teams of all time at 323 wins, and Time Magazine named a computer as Man of the Year. And that is not all that was going on in the jam-packed month of December of 1982. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McQueeny and welcome to 80s All Over. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. What's up, Scott? D
1: to the R-E-W, I got something to say about you. It's December 1982.
0: That's <laughs> right. Thank you very much. It's interesting. I, when we started 1982, I was thinking of all the summer stuff. This is a pretty big month just in terms of density. There's a lot of uh, fairly famous titles that came out this month. There's also a lot of stuff that no one remembers even happened. So
1: There's also a lot of stuff that I remember liking as a kid and not liking so much as an adult and vice versa. And that to me is, is kind
0: of fun. Earlier this year, we uh, we talked about the regional release of the family-oriented kidnapping comedy, Savannah Smiles. Uh, December was the month that 20th Century Fox picked the film up and then released it nationwide. Oh, thank God we mentioned that. Savannah Smiles fans, don't tweet us. It was weird because they had the luck with Porky's earlier in the year, which they had picked up almost a year after a Canadian release. That seems like that was a big Fox move at the time to find regional hits that they were trying to turn into national hits, whereas Porky's was lightning- Savannah Smiles really wasn't. That came and went very quickly, I remember, on the national stage that month.
1: You know what's uh, really interesting, Drew, is that this month we got The Seven
0: Samurai. This was actually, this is where I saw it the first time. The giant reissue they did in December of 82 was the first time I saw it. I saw it theatrically. And that was the moment where I realized that, oh, older films aren't necessarily boring. I had already liked some older movies, but I don't think I'd ever had one hit me the same way this one did. And I think it's because all modern action movie language basically starts with Seven Samurai.
1: Masterpiece of a film, it is truly one of those gateway films in that when you're young, films that are very old or black and white or very cultured or mature or from, God forbid, another culture or another language, those films can seem really daunting and intimidating or even boring because that's how a kid interprets those things. Then you get to school, and in high school, fortunately, I had some really cool teachers who were very much into film. For the three days when we watched Seven Samurai, you would have thought we had discovered a new Indiana Jones movie. Our teacher must have been so elated at
0: the way we reacted to this movie. It's so funny to watch it and realize how much has been taken from it over the years. And yet, no matter how much has been stolen from it, the film retains this enormous power. Everybody in it is larger than life. It's no mystery that I name my son Toshiro after Toshiro Mufune. And when he makes his entrance in this movie, he's like a wild animal. There is this awesome body language to him. And I love the way he wears his giant sword. If you just took his silhouette, he's one of the most distinct film characters I've ever seen. Every member of the cast is terrific. Every battle in that film is unbelievably staged. It's so evocative and it's so powerfully visual.
1: I've seen it probably three or four times, and it is the perfect entry point To Kurosawa, the fact that so many films that were inspired by Seven Samurai are also so beloved. It's like even the copies are good.
0: That's one of the strongest story shapes I've ever seen. That's, that's why people keep borrowing it. Um, it's interesting when you have filmmakers that are canonized at a certain point in their career, especially when it's young, who then dramatically fall off. And Kurosawa, I think, was able to age gracefully. I wish Lindsay Anderson had been able to age as gracefully.
1: Now, there's a segue, ladies and gentlemen, from Akira Kurosawa to uh, British farce, dark comedy director, Lindsay Anderson, Britannia Hospital.
2: This is a British hospital! Today, the human experiment. Tomorrow, Genesis.
3: Remember the Battle of Britain. Remember the Peasants' Battle. We're all on the same side, then. Right? Not in a class
1: war, we're not. Not in the inevitable march of socialism, Potter.
0: This to me feels like one of those mystifying falls from grace where all I can assume is he realized at a certain point that theater is more important to him than film.
1: This is the unofficial third chapter in a trilogy that starts with if and then follows with Oh, Lucky Man, all by Lindsay Anderson and all starring Malcolm McDowell. I didn't
0: get Britannia Hospital, man. I didn't get it. I do love the first two Lindsay Anderson movies, and I think he was on par with young Kubrick. He was a guy who was acutely aware of what was wrong with England and England's social class structure and attacked it through movies in a way that was, it was intriguing because he went through stages of a man's life. If is all about school and it's all about, in particular, the English... Uh, private schools, the ones that you're sent to live in, and uh, the way that sort of indoctrinates and, and beats the individuality out of people. And it is one of the great angry young man movies from England, whereas Oh Lucky Man is sort of what is, middle, what is the middle of your life and what do you do with it and how do you find your way? And they're both funny and strange and sprawling and surreal at times. The idea that Lindsay Anderson would turn his attention to the national health system you got to realize they were having their healthcare crisis like we're having now in the late seventies, early eighties in England, and it was when they were privatizing and when they were suddenly making everything public and when they were creating universal healthcare. And there was such a struggle over just getting the basics taken care of. It should play for us right now perfectly because we're going through that ourselves. It played to me like and Monty Python that's the problem is he never figured out how to get his hands on the target here. And the way he brings Mick in uh, as a character is now he's working in news and he's a cameraman wanted to satirize how the news chase things. And he also wanted to satirize the healthcare system. It's like he took two of Patty Chayefsky scripts, the hospital and network and was trying to marry them and couldn't get either to work. How weird was it to see Mark Hamill in this? Mark, I was going to say this some really cool faces pop up in this
1: and uh, one of Malcolm McDowell's crew he's a cameraman is played by a young Mark Hamill,
0: who I'm guessing did it because it was a cool opportunity to work with Lindsay Anderson. And, you know, he was in England anyway. If you're interested in Lindsay Anderson uh, and you're listening to this and you're not really familiar with him, he was a critic turned filmmaker. And like a lot of those guys like Truffaut and like Carl Rice. They ate and breathed movies for a long time. And while I think Anderson, eventually his heart went to theater. If you want to read a great, great film book, he wrote a book on John Ford, just called About John Ford, that is as good as Truffaut Hitchcock. It is a terrific look at why Ford was so important to young filmmakers and filmmakers who were thinking about film as something larger than just telling stories. Nice. While I recommend that book, I also recommend a book... That was written in the late 80s for independent filmmakers called Making Movies by a guy named John Russo. It is also proof that just because you can write a good book about how to get a movie made does not mean you can make a good movie. That's a lot of shoe leather, but I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) I tried. I tried so hard.
1: And uh, Most horror fans will know John Russo as the co-screenwriter on the immortal classic Night of the Living Dead by George Romero. But now we are moving to 1982, and it is midnight. They should have known better when they came into town.
2: Every sign pointed to what could happen there. Every indication told them to leave now. The wise guys in the bar, the preacher's warning, and the sheriff who made hate a way of life. Go, get out of town. We don't want your kind here. But they stayed. They stayed, and it became too late to leave too late as the clock approached midnight midnight now the book from the co-author of night of the living dead comes to life on the screen don't miss john russo's midnight
0: First of all, can I just say that Lawrence Tierney makes me wildly uncomfortable? Yeah, Lawrence Tierney is a freaky, gropey, sleazy
1: father who makes his teenage daughter run away. She runs into the woods and runs afoul of a backwoods satanic family. It's not the worst
0: (laughs) Z grade horror movie we've covered. It kind of moves at a pretty good pace. That has that crazy opening where it's like frailty, but with Satan worshippers, where the mom is telling them it's a demon. It's not a little girl. It's not your neighbor's sister. It's just it's a demon killer. And they never they never go far enough with that. The rest of the movie has this weird, goofy Texas Chainsaw style family. It's not dark enough to really be upsetting. It's not creepy enough to earn the weird Lawrence Tierney stuff. It's kind of a mess, man. Yeah, and Tom Savini does
1: some good effects, and the rest of the movie is pretty forgettable.
0: That's the thing. He was the reason we went. He was the whole reason I would buy a ticket. They knew that, man. They wouldn't have to work very hard because they had us.
1: It's The Hills Have Eyes, Chainsaw Massacre, and Another Coat of Paint, only not quite as creative or clever or scary. Uh, Drew, last month, you remember when we covered a film called Time Walker, and it was about a mummy that was also, I think, an alien? Yes, but only barely, and that's
0: a real testament to that film.
1: Well, for years, I had Time Walker mixed up with our next film, Time Rider, The Adventure of Lyle Swan. November 5th, 1877, San Marcos, California. Something is coming. What was that? Something
3: frightening. <laughs> Something appealing. Take off your clothes. Something from 105 years in the future. This is a man. He is not the devil. Time Rider, The Adventure of Lyle Swan. A man who found his future in the past rated pg
0: there were a lot of these movies that came out within a very short period of time that had similar titles and similar posters and time walker time stopper time taster so time Rider it benefits enormously from the fact that it has fred ward as does anything that features fred ward hey, Man, if we could just rate these movies just based on character actor stable this would be a b plus Just There's two henchmen that are like, if it was just a movie about Tracy Walter and his partner, just those guys are so much more interesting, and yet they don't know what to do with them. The premise
1: is that Fred Ward plays a motocross biker, wanders into an area where there is a time travel experiment being done by the government, and he gets zapped back in time to the old (laughs) west. That's the premise. There's a motorcycle in the Old West. Fred Ward, (laughs) Peter Coyote, Ed Lauder,
0: LQ Jones, Richard Mazur. I mean- Yeah, it's Richard Mazer and Tracy Walter that are paired as as henchmen. And just that combination is insane to me. I absolutely love this actor. I did a quick count. We're going to mention him nine million times this decade. It has the potential to be like a PG-level Disney-type family adventure movie, right? I had to go look up to see if it was made by a company that was like one of these Bible sort of adjunct companies. And it blew my mind when I realized it's Michael Nesmith. Who wrote and produced this movie and explain why that's weird. Well, A, as a member of the Monkees, he became famous on screen and as a musician. That's the way people thought of him. He strikes me as a guy who very early on saw the idea of original video content as a way to break Hollywood wide open. I mean, he was a radical thinker about film from the beginning. If you look at Head, Head is not what people think of the monkeys as. It's not the goofy TV version. It is their reaction to having been built as a band out of spare parts and then having had that experience. And Head's a, a real movie. I th- it felt like he wanted to be like almost like a Roger Corman. Yeah, but with a surreal bent, like Roger Corman if he'd been a surreal prankster. And so there is this quality uh, with a lot of the Nesmith stuff, whether it's elephant parts or uh, tape heads or things like that, that they're absurd and they're weird and they're crazy. And Time Rider is very mellow considering who made it dull. Some might say, yes, whenever there is action it's very gentle. It's very careful not to be bloody. Drew, when the
1: movie started, did you think it was skipping because we were stuck from the POV from the motorcycle? The very beginning of this movie is a mess. It takes a long time to even figure out how to be a movie. I didn't ever saw this one as a kid. I might have seen it bits and pieces on HBO. I hate to say it, but if I saw this as a kid, I probably would have liked it and would now be saying it's not very good. So let's lose the first part and say...
0: It's Disney-lite. It's a Disney family movie not made by Disney. Our next movie, though, is pretty good. It is adapted from a Pulitzer Prize-winning play by Jason Miller. It's a movie called That Championship Season.
3: For one brief moment, they were the greatest. I'm proud <laughs> of Climbing to the top of yeah. your
2: professions, business, politics. Education, travel, go! Hey! Even though the election's just a month away,
4: no politics today, and that's a promise. For
2: the 1957 Pennsylvania high school basketball champions. Here, here. So you want to dump me as George's campaign manager, huh? You're a shabby man. You're degenerate! Find his weak spot and go after him. You're shabby! Punish him with it. You're a twisted man! Read the names in silver. Deny that.
3: Empty! That championship season. A Golan Globus
1: production of a Jason Miller film from Canon. This movie is almost an exact gender flip of what film that we covered last episode oh
0: it's uh come back to the five and nine jimmy dean jimmy dean no it's it's a really standard shape on stage the idea of a reunion where you have people come together because then you get to talk about the past and you get to talk your way through your changes it's a great way for actors to sort of stretch and bruce stern stacy Keach, paul sorvino martin sheen and robert
1: mitchum great manly man cast it is about a former basketball team. They reunite 25 years later to obviously discuss that championship season but more importantly deal with their stresses and problems and and issues of everyday life. And then every once in a while something kind of subversive or kind of unexpected pops
0: in. It's a pretty safe drama overall. Well-written solid. It gives everybody a chance to have their moment, which is really what a play like this is about. You know, I like Jason Miller a lot. I really do. And a lot of that just goes back to The Exorcist. Did you know that that The Exorcist was
1: his first performance? I didn't never realize The Exorcist was his debut. I learned a little bit about him
0: because I met his son uh, when The Exorcist came out again, when they did the, the new cut with William Friedkin. I met his son, who you know, from River's Edge. And we talked a little bit about his dad. And He came to writing and acting late and was a guy that had lived this other life. And that informed a lot of what he wrote and a lot of what he played on screen. And I like him. And I think he's one of those guys who we didn't get enough of on screen. He was such an interesting presence and such a real presence.
1: Of the five leads, who do you think gives the best performance?
0: I think Dern's really good in it
1: thought you were going to say Keach because he does some stuff in this movie that is very
0: un-Stacey He does. And it's nice to see Keach in something in this era where he's actually stretching and where they're using him as more than just sort of a tough guy or a goof. Because Keech was a guy that was weird to cast, I think, for some directors and was great when you gave him the right material.
1: I thought Miller as a surprisingly good writer, and I hate to say it
0: because it's an obvious thing to say, but... Not all that interesting of a director. Oh, no, not really. And it breaks my heart because this thing took 10 years to make it to the screen. You can have a Pulitzer Prize and Tony Prize winning play and still take 10 years to figure out how to make a movie out of it. And freaking almost did it. Freakin was attached for a little while. And that might have been a more memorable version of this.
1: Yeah. Uh, again, I think it's a better film. But if you really want to see two films from the same year, that cover some of the same ground in a very interesting way. Watch, come back to the five and dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean and the championship season. Very similar in strange ways.
0: I also really like seeing old Robert Mitchum show up in anything. Now
1: we move to a film that feels like it's six weeks long. It's called (laughs) Six Weeks.
2: (laughs) In six weeks, you'll find memories to last a lifetime. Dudley Moore and Mary Tyler Moore, six weeks, rated PG, starts Friday at a theater near you.
0: I'm glad to see real-life siblings, Mary Tyler and Dudley Moore, finally work together, and I think they are terrific. people are going to boner alert us.
1: Stop that. (laughs) Dudley Moore is a Brit, and Mary Tyler Moore is American. Okay. (laughs) She's a wealthy makeup entrepreneur, a business owner. He's a British politician from California. Wait, wait. He's an Englishman running for California Congress. Let's get that. Let's get that right. Her daughter is dying and in a hurry. And
0: inexplicably, he's got a relationship with her.
1: Right. So Dudley Moore goes with Mary Tyler Moore and her dying daughter on a trip to New York City so she can see the Nutcracker and dance on stage and do all these beautiful make a wish things before she dies in a very melodramatic fashion. But Dudley Moore has a wife and kid back home. What is this movie about?
0: What's going on? What's really upsetting about it, the relationship is entirely with the daughter. He and Mary Tyler Moore have no real relationship except through the daughter. I have questions upon questions upon questions. First of all, what office is he running for and how does he qualify for it? Forget
1: all... Dude, forget that. (laughs) He... No, it feels like it's going to some Larry Clark place. That's where it feels like it's going, all right? It is unsettling. I don't even want to talk about this movie. Tony Bill, who directed My Bodyguard, and David Seltzer of The Omen in many good films. This one hurts because both of us love My Bodyguard. And- that, no, but that movie is touching and does it by being subtle. This movie's like, dying kid, push that
0: button. And it's one of those obvious ones where you see what they're going to try to do to you from the very beginning of the movie. And what's upsetting about it is there's so many things that are, it requires you to just be a moron and just go along with it. It's got like this faux wedding sequence that's... We don't even know if the chemotherapy she's refusing would work. She's just decided, I'm going to just not take anything and die. Because she's a 50-year-old in a 14-year-old's body. She's one of those kid actors who is cranked up to Ethel Merman all the time. Anyway, the point is, Six Weeks is a terrible
1: prequel to Nine and a Half Weeks. Let's move on. (laughs) All right. I like that. Now uh, we move on
0: to... Speaking of
1: terrible jokes. Yeah, a category that Drew and I will touch on many times. And I believe that my affection for this category started with Jaws 2. Decent sequels. Two great movies. Up until about three weeks ago, I would have put this film in that heading, Airplane 2, the sequel.
2: Paramount Pictures presents the National Movie Quiz. What movie has the woman torn between love and security? Well, I can help you if you can't get it up. The aging pilot with a strange obsession. Well, Mike, my, my goodness, Scraps is a boy dog, isn't he? The hero they said would never fly again. Except this time, I know exactly what I'm doing. Airplane 2, the sequel,
1: rated PG. Now playing at a theater near you. Check newspapers. If I paid you to watch this movie and write down everything that was remotely funny that isn't from the first movie, you would have a blank piece of paper and 20 of my dollars. This movie starts out fairly well. It does. If the movie has eight good jokes, six of them are in the first 20 minutes.
0: And then it just gets rougher and rougher and
1: rougher as it goes. And then, God bless him, Towards Act 3, William Shatner shows up and saves the day with some good deadpan silliness.
0: And this was way ahead of the larger cultural reevaluation of William Shatner as a guy who was in on the joke. And he clearly very early on uh, was in on the joke. Yeah, that's
1: part of the fun of Airplane is watching Peter Graves, Robert Stack, Leslie Nielsen, Lloyd Bridges. These generally very stoic, very stern, sincere guys be stone-faced silly. For this one, they added Chuck Connors, not funny. Rip Torn would later prove to be very funny. In this, not funny. Chad Everett, not funny. But the last one they grabbed was William
0: Shatner, and he got it. The sense of humor I understand bringing over. Jokes? That's not right. You don't do the same joke punch. That's not at all what Airplane was built
1: on. If the joke is, Shirley, you can't be serious, I am serious, and don't call me Shirley, and then you do it three years later in a sequel... Am I supposed to take that as a callback where I'm go, oh, I remember that joke. That's funny. Or am I supposed to take it as
0: lazy? Look, if if 1982 was supposed to be the year of Ken Finkelman, I wanted none of it that year. I will say that his other film that he wrote that year, Grease 2, has aged better. And it surprisingly is the one that has accelerated in reputation over the years.
1: Ken Finkelman would go on to do the newsroom of all things many years later. And we'll get to another film of his that I have a colorful history with called Head Office. That is not good. If uh, you love Airplane and you kind of like Airplane 2, I could see that. But having just revisited it recently, I think I chuckled three or four times, max.
0: If you remember it fondly through nostalgia goggles, leave it there.
1: And now we're going to switch gears with a comedy that in some ways is better than it was back then and in other ways has not aged all that well. In the next 48 hours, Nick Nolte, a cop on
3: the calm type. And Eddie Murphy, a con, have got to outshoot, outsmart, Luther? outrun, and outlive the men they're after. They're not having a great time together. Same by night. And all the time they've got is forty-eight hours. Y'all be cool. Rated
0: R. Let's set the stage here. This was Christmas time. There were giant movies out, and the giant movie stars that Christmas were Burt Reynolds, Peter Sellers. Clint Eastwood, Richard Pryor. Those were the giant movie stars who were working. In the midst of all this, Paramount takes a shot on a kid who is starting to build buzz on television and a character actor who they've been working with and trying to push over as a movie star and had had very little luck with. Everybody who's listening to this,
1: picture when you were 14 or 15. And there was just one comedian, no matter what they did, that's all your friends would talk about in school. That guy was Eddie Murphy when he did Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood, when he did that bit where he dressed up as a white guy and went
0: on the bus. We roared over everything Eddie Murphy did. And our parents didn't get it. He wasn't for them. They didn't know what was going on. 48 Hours came out. And it was like a nuclear bomb went off. All of a sudden, Eddie Murphy went from that kid who's building a reputation on Saturday Night live to Hollywood's next big thing. And he ate all the other movie stars that Christmas alive.
1: Now, it's pretty raw. It's pretty violent for a comedy. And it's pretty uh, funny for an action movie. But it's got some racial themes. It's got some sexist themes. It's got some stuff that we look at now and go, ooh.
0: There's two very different issues going on in this movie. The race stuff, I think, is aged great because it is edgy, uncomfortable, and it is angry, and it should be. There's nothing about it that is meant to be comfortable. The way Jack Cates talks, Jack Cates is a piece of shit, and he is an unmitigated, unrepentant.
1: That's what I like about when I was a kid. I thought this guy was supposed to be like your TV cop
0: hero. He's not. At best, he's an anti-hero, but he's also a dick. I think Eddie Murphy comes in so hot, so angry. And then there's that scene in the bar, which is the birth of a movie star. You see him walk into that bar, Eddie Murphy, and he walks out the biggest movie star on the planet. And that scene is all about race and acknowledging that tension where I think the movie stumbles and where it does not age well at all is anything involving Annette O'Toole's character that stuff is despicable they never knew what they were doing with that she shows up to be a punching bag the movie wipes its ass with her and then moves on foreign and she's easily the biggest female character in yeah, the movie and she's the only one that really registers and it's a shame because i love Annette O'Toole. tool i'm certainly down for seeing her in the middle of this kind of movie but there's nothing going on that's written for her and she's treated like dog food. It's awful.
1: You can watch an old film that has a few wrinkles that make you go, "Ooh, don't really appreciate that and still appreciate the art for the era in which it oh, was yeah. made.
0: And everything else about this movie is terrific. The action is bone crunching. And Walter Hill, who was still at this point not a Season, season filmmaker. He was a writer who had finally moved into directing and was building his style and his reputation. And this movie was such a commercial monster that it bought him the rest of the decade. He earned it here because he understood right away what he had between Nolte and Murphy. And he understood that the harder the action is, the funnier Eddie Murphy gets. Because he's surviving this stuff. Somehow Reggie has learned how to navigate a world in which you have James Remar and David Patrick Kelly and Sonny Landham murdering people the way they're murdering them. And they are unreal in this film. Yeah. And by many accounts, this was a troubled production.
1: I know it was originally Clint Eastwood and Richard Pryor to star together. Uh, Our friend who did an interview with us, Stephen D'Souza, was one of the credited writers on the film. There were
0: apparently uh, personality clashes and troubles on the shoot. And if you are not a Patreon subscriber and you want to hear Stevie E D'Souza talk about 48 Hours, well, here's a little hint of it, and you should probably subscribe because it's awesome.
4: Well, anyway, the movie comes out, but I'm never mentioned in any of the
0: publicity because
4: it's all going across Walter's desk. By this time, I'm back on the Universal lot, uh, but I'm surprised I'm not getting any movie offers. And one day, um, a guy who was a television director comes to my office and he says, Listen, you should know that Water Hill is bad mouthing you all over this town. You should know this. That this stand up guy was Avon Naj, who at this time, unbeknownst to me, but later one found out, was Heidi Fleiss's pimp. Oh, oh, God. So time goes by. That I get a phone call from my agent and he says, Listen, uh, Joel Silver wants to talk to you, come to my Christmas party. I said, Joel Silver, I can't get that guy on the phone. And Walter Hill's pissing on my name all over town. You want to get even? Have him give you a lot of money. He wants to talk to you about another picture. Uh, Right after this picture got made, 48 Hours, uh, Larry, Joel, and Walter made uh, Streets of Fire. What happened as that movie got together, Larry Gordon looks in the variety one day, and it says that Joel Silver and Walter Hill are making a movie called Streets of Fire at Universal Studios. So Larry... Who has a, a stuffed piranha on his desk and a little sign that says the only thing tougher than the jew that got out of auschwitz is the jew that got out of mississippi he calls up joel and basically says joel this announcement about this movie which is like one week after we premiered 48 hours it seems to me the only way you and walter could have cooked up that movie would have been on my payroll on my set so i think there's a mistake in that press release that I'm sure you're one of that <laughs> that you're going to want to fix before my lawyers fix it. They said it's all the same people that made 48 Hours, except it wasn't. I wasn't there, so the movie tanked. I go to the Christmas party, and Joel says, "Listen, I should have called you back. Uh, I was wrong. I Walter, It was Walter. He made me do it. He, you know, we were doing the other movie with him, and like I couldn't do it. He he would have he would have known I called you back from the set when the movie came out. It tanked." You know, so uh, you know. Let's just put it aside. I want to make another move with you. You know who Arnold Schwarzenegger is?
0: I'm going to make a confession here, and if my parents hear it, well, then they finally know the truth about something. Your parents don't know how a podcast works. I snuck out to see this movie. I I snuck in with friends. We saw this movie in the theater, and it was life-changing. It was a big deal. And we went precisely because of what you talked about, Scott, that Eddie Murphy was something that was happening that we had to pay attention to, that he was a big deal. My parents, when it came out on home video, said that they'd like to see it and that I could watch it with them. I'd already seen it, but I had to pretend I hadn't. We got about nine minutes into the movie, into the hotel sequence, Let me guess, you turned around and said, this is the best part. And they start killing people. Nick Nolte is basically yelling, fuck, 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 the entire time. And my dad just stood up, calmly walked by, hit eject, took the tape, walked out of the room. We didn't make it to Eddie Murphy before my dad bailed out. He thought it was too rough. So as far as he knows, I still haven't seen 48 Hours, I don't think.
1: On uh, film Twitter, you will eventually see people mention how much they love Walter Hill. And if you feel like, hmm, that's a name I know, but I don't know his stuff. 48 Hours is where you should start, and then you can go backwards and forwards from there. Hey, Scott,
0: what movie did Clint Eastwood make instead of 48 Hours?
1: He made a film, it's called Honky Tonk Man.
0: Clint Eastwood and his son Kyle. Boom.
2: Oh. They're stepping out. He'd like to go down to Nashville with your old Uncle Red. Living life on the edge. passing down a legacy
3: you
2: going to sing at the ground Ole I'm fighting for a dream. <laughs> I don't think you're having the shells in that shotgun. You want to That's the life of a country singer.
1: Honky Tonk Man. True or false? The sequel to Honky Tonk Freeway? True. Why in Honky Tonk Freeway is Honky Tonk two words, but
0: in Honky Tonk Man, Honky Tonk is one word. Damn it! You, you got me. This is, um, this is one of the first times that it struck me Clint Eastwood could be, what's the word, boring.
1: B to the O-R-I-N-G. Clint, I guess what you do to me. I fell asleep three times watching Honk Tonk Man. And and I don't want people (laughs) to think that I'm being nasty (laughs) here. Please, please, somebody put music behind that. (laughs) I don't want people to think I'm being
0: nasty here because I think Bronco Billy which is an earnest sweet. It's terrific. It's going to be interesting because we're now at that point because Clint Eastwood's directing career has as many ups and downs as any career I can name. And we're at the point now where he's sort of struggling towards respect away from commercial success because he had already had hits. That was not the question. And Clint had movies that certainly critics had, had seized early on, like Play Misty for me, But it was interesting watching critics try to grapple with who he was as a filmmaker when he would go and he would do movies with a monkey and then he would come back and he would do this and he would orangutan is not a monkey. Well, God, how many times do I have to tell you?
1: Here's what Honky Tonk Man is about. A dying country singer during the Depression travels with his son. It's over two hours long. There's a lot of Clint Eastwood singing 30s era country western music. If I thought that it was engaging or insightful, you know, then I'd probably be taking it a little more seriously, but I don't.
0: Based on a book by Clancy Carlisle, who also wrote the script, I'll agree with you. It's very earnest, and you can tell he means it. And I think the nicest stuff in it is probably when he finally gets his chance to sing. And he writes the song with the kid over time and it kind of takes shape and then he gets gets to perform that song. And that stuff kind of tracks and it works and it's nice. And I remember as a twelve year old seeing this with my dad that Christmas, not realizing that there's a tradition of folk singing and country singing and where it's not about how beautiful the voice is, it's about the story that's being told. And I could admire now, listening to him, that Clint was Fine for the kind of music that he's playing here. The old 30s country.
1: This is a guy who could have gotten any action or Western type movie made. And he said, no, I'm going to use my own company, my own money. I'm going to make what I want to make. I admire anybody who doesn't just play it safe.
0: He shares your love of good character actors. You look at the cast for this with Verna Bloom and Barry Corbin and Tim Thomerson and and he gets nice work out of them. Everybody's good. Everybody shows up and and does what they're supposed to.
1: And the production design is great. The period design. It looks
0: it looks nice. Yeah, it's one of those movies where somebody coughs into a handkerchief and you know what's going to happen.
1: Honky Tonk Man is unforgiven in comparison to the film we're about to discuss next. If you think I've been angry about those shitty, shitty Bugs Bunny truncated non-movies, if you think I got angry about the way that directors exploit their actors, you just wait until Drew and I sink our fucking teeth into Blake Edwards' Trail of the fucking Pink Panther.
3: Follow the trail of the world's greatest detective. Look,
1: I know what I mean, you lunatic. He's
3: a master of disguise. Perfect. Perfect. I knew that. He's charming. Good evening, mademoiselle. Ah! Dangerous. Debonair. Ah! Peter Sellers and Blake Edwards' newest and
0: funniest comedy, Trail of the Pink Panther, rated PG. It is sacrilegious, watching what they do with these leftover odds and ends and bits and pieces of Peter Sellers.
1: This is the sixth in a series that started with The Pink Panther, Shot in the Dark, Revenge, Return, Strikes Again. I don't know the exact order of three, four, and five, but they are all varying degrees of great and or very funny. There is some wonderful slapstick in those middle three that I saw with my parents when I was very young. If you didn't know any better, you would think it's just a really oddly edited, terrible sequel after five pretty good movies. What you might not know is This film was produced 18 months after Peter Sellers died. And what Blake Edwards did is he took footage from his previous films of his friend, a guy whom helped make him millions of dollars. It is like watching
0: somebody play with a corpse. It is disgusting. Peter Sellers wife, Lynn Frederick, sued the living shit out of them. It wasn't just because it's ghoulish and gross and inconsiderate and craps on the memory of what they did together it's also because they had a contract that said they couldn't do this peter sellers was smart enough to realize that he had left tons of set pieces unused in these movies and the way he and blake edwards work together especially in the middle three that you talk about the two of them together are the pink panther there is no other pink panther there's no reason to do it without those two people together
1: blake edwards just came off victor victoria and sob arguably two of his best non-Panther movies. He wasn't desperate. He wasn't like, nobody's answering my phone calls, let me
0: cobble together some... He could have done almost anything at this point. And he is fascinating to me for that exact reason, Scott, because you're 100% correct. It's just crazy that he would look at this at this point because, you know, they were trying to make another one. They tried forever to make another one and they developed it for a long time. And I think their relationship imploded there was a point where they couldn't work together again and i think at that point the respectful thing is you walk away the idea that after peter died blake did this compounds the disrespect in my mind because not only did he have a contract that said he shouldn't do it but he couldn't even agree with peter on what the next movie was going to be there's no moral authority there on blake's part it kind of ruined the way i felt about him for a long time because i felt like he disrespected the best relationship he ever had creatively. Now, here's the thing. There are a few sequences here that I like a lot. There are little bits and pieces of footage here that are interesting as a fan of sellers. and absolutely. Edwards. But to release it as part of a theatrical yeah. film after the man is dead and without his this wife. should have been a documentary. There should have been a doc that they put together where they said, "Hey, we have all this unused stuff, and I love Peter so much that I feel bad that I have things on the shelf that make me laugh that you guys can't see. And yeah, of course you can
1: make a nickel on it, and you pay his widow some money as well. You don't package it like... And you know who really suit? suffers in
0: this? Herbert, Herbert Long. Long. Oh my God, we said it at the same time. It's disgraceful, and it's sad. And you know that he's tap dancing as hard as he can to make it work, but it's... Man, it's rough. You want to add the, uh, the icing to the tasteless cake?
1: David Niven was dying shooting this movie, and they got Rich Little to dub his voice in post. It's not a deli, man. You're not cutting meat. These are real people. Ugh, whatever. Trail of the Pink Panther is a disgusting film, far and away one of the worst films of the year. Uh, Let us never discuss it again.
0: And now we move on. This is a really interesting one to me because of the backstory there's a real-life relationship that kind of blew up between screenwriters Barry Levinson and Valerie Curtin, and the film is Best Friends.
2: Burt Reynolds and Goldie Hawn in a very special relationship. Burt Reynolds and Goldie Hawn Our best friends. Best friends. Rated PG. Now playing at a theater near you. Please check newspaper for local listings.
1: This movie sucks. (laughs) Uh, Norman Jewison (laughs) is a great director. Thomas Crown Affair, In the Heat of the Night, Fiddler on the Roof, Barry Levinson and Valerie Curtin. Great screenwriters on many other things, but just the idea of, hey, we're screenwriters who fell in love and got married when we probably shouldn't have. Let's write that exact thing into a screenplay and they'll produce it. It is
0: interminable. The big stakes in the movie are whether or not they can get past their bullshit with each other to do their million dollar rewrite in time.
1: And that would all be fine and well if you had a screenplay that wasn't just very egotistical, very indulgent, and two actors you didn't want to smash with a brick. This movie should have been just called Bicker, Bitch, Bicker, because all they do with each other is snip, snipe. What did you say that for? Don't tell her I said this. I'll kick the... Shut up! That's the whole movie! Oh, they're
0: awful people! Curtin and Levinson just aren't there as writers. They can't pull it off. The the script doesn't have any of that that spitball fire on it. And you
1: know what? Goldie Hawn could... If she had a tennis partner who could return serve.
0: Dude, have you ever seen anybody work so hard to make somebody? Now, this is crazy. Having just revisited both these movies. Think of the chemistry between Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds in Best Little Whorehouse. They're really good together, and they have this, and especially in the bedroom scenes, there's a great easy charm, and you get the feeling that there's there's they're relaxed with one another, and that they could work as a couple. You know why?
1: Because I think Bert was a little bit intimidated by Dolly Parton, and he's not in any way intimidated
0: by Goldie Hawn. I think that's honestly what it was. He doesn't seem to have any chemistry with her, and she's throwing everything at him, and it's not sticking. You read it a lot of times in reviews and
1: whatnot, where you'll see the the actor couldn't care less, and I'm thinking, well, how could you tell? You know, like maybe the performance isn't good, but how could you tell if they couldn't care less? Watch Burt Reynolds in this movie. He is so disinterested. He's almost glowering at the director
0: saying, like, say cut. And he's not very good at hiding it. At long last, love is a movie that takes a lot of critical shit. But you watch him in that movie. He's 100% present, and he is trying to keep up with everybody, and he's having a good time doing it. In this film, man, not at all. It's like Chevy Chase. I like Chevy Chase, but when he's not trying... You want to punch him. How about the sequence where he, for no reason, gets his wife hooked on Valium?
1: The whole joke is, I want to turn my wife into a drug addict just so I can get some peace and
0: quiet. Just so she shuts up. Just shut her nattering mouth. There's a lot of this movie where they go to see their parents, and their parents are both these amazing duos where you're like, okay, cool, maybe things can start to kick in and get... Nope, nope, nope. I don't like their parents either. They're not written well. Jessica Tandy... Bernard Hughes, Audra Lindley in one of her rare big screen roles. And man, how excited were you to see her show up? Because I like her. And I was like, cool. And Keenan freaking win. Some movies just feel
1: like they were handed to a producer and be like, all right, I got this director's free this month. I got these screenwriters. I got these stars. And they hand it to him all in one package. And the director runs it through a machine. And two months later, you have a completely formless generic. Uh,
0: it's the difference between the Barry Levinson who was working for studios and turning out in personal junk and the Barry Levinson who took a chance on an independent movie called Diner and put everything he had on the line. And I know which artist I'm more interested in. And it's not the guy who wrote Best Friends.
1: Now we move on to something that is decidedly not junk, but I have a feeling it's going to cause some degree of debate between Drew and myself. It is the 1982 oscar winner for best picture who the hell is he i don't know sir
3: some men change their times one man changed the world for all time columbia pictures presents a richard attenborough film gandhi they're calling you mahatma great soul Starring Martin Sheen What if they don't arrest you? What if they don't react at all? Something for your notebook. The function of a civil resistor is to provoke response. Sir John Gielgud
2: Mr. Gandhi will find it takes a great deal more than a pinch of salt
3: to bring down the British Empire. Candace Bergen You're a temptress. Just an admirer. Nothing's more dangerous. Trevor Howard John Mills, Rohini Hatangadi, and introducing Ben Kingsley as Mohandas Gandhi. I am a Muslim, and a Hindu, and a Christian, and a Jew, and so are all of you. He offered the
1: world a way out of matters. Prior to the show, when we did our little note and everything, you gave the implication that you were going to be oddly critical of some quote-unquote sacred cows, and for some reason... I thought you were referring to Gandhi in that regard.
0: First of all, if I were to call Gandhi a sacred cow, there's something slightly um, problematic about using cow about a movie about an Indian land, but whatever. Why are you explaining my joke? <laughs> oh, is that what it was? All right. I'm sorry. Good I'm sorry. God. I thought you stepped in that one. I'm sorry. <laughs> Here's the thing. When did you see the film for the first time? Probably five years ago. And what was your reaction when you saw the movie just to the movie? This is what this kind of film should be it takes a
1: textbook example of a larger than life figure and instills it with some real humanity and shows you why people love this man to me that's what the cinema is all about and i think attenborough does a a masterful job of telling us why this man was
0: important i think this is a movie about the outside of things i don't feel that i know anything about gandhi after watching this movie Not really. I don't think the movie does anything to humanize him or remotely get inside him personally. Beyond that, I'm not a big fan of myth-making. Not a big fan of sanding the edges off of people in order to make them something other than what they were or bigger than what they were. Biopics are very problematic for me because I think that they are borderline propaganda, and it all depends on how you emphasize whatever story you're telling. Gandhi is a fascinating person. There is no doubt that he is a moral authority in terms of non-violence protest. There's also no doubt that he has his problems. He he's a human being, and he had plenty of rough edges. And you think the film deifies him too much? It's it's borderline Jesus Christ sitting in rooms with thirty watt light bulbs behind his head. I think what they've created here is using him as a fable, not as a person. I think we benefit in this world from having real conversations about people who are both good and bad and acknowledging that that we are those things and that you can be a moral authority about this and not a moral authority about something else. And if we can't be honest about that, then everything breaks down to binary good, bad. And I think this contributes to that. He has to be Saint Gandhi or he's useless, even if it is 25
1: percent fable or even fiction. That's. Part of the contract that you are accepting when you watch the film, maybe it's not one hundred percent biopic, so judge it for what it is. If it is twenty five percent fiction, as like a film like Amadeus definitely is, as well.
0: And we'll we'll get into Amadeus because that perfectly complements what I am talking about, and we will get there. But my point is, if the if a biopic brings twenty five percent fabrication
1: to the game, does that instantly make it a lesser film?
0: Lawrence of Arabia is not a movie where I I believe that it is one hundred percent or even close to 100% accurate. It is a movie that has taken its fair liberties in terms of drama, but it is done so with, I think a clear thematic eye and with a sense that as a human being, the complication of him is why he is interesting. The fact that he is not somebody who is to be revered is what makes him worth referencing. This Gandhi movie to me is like I said, surfaces. And I think Richard Attenborough made a pretty and respectful movie I think it is all fairly sedate. I think it is presented down the middle history book lesson. I don't even like it as a movie aside from what I think it says. My favorite thing about it, the one thing that I will say above and beyond 100% I love. I think the Ravi Shankar score is freaking amazing. Do you
1: think that the problem with the film is that Attenborough was too
0: safe? I think he was an old white Englishman who wanted to be very, very respectful and very, very careful, and meant well, and certainly liked what Gandhi was about. I don't think there's anything wrong with any of that. I also don't think that grading on a curve makes Gandhi great. And I think that his intentions and his careful conservative approach do not necessarily translate to a viewing experience that I would ever have again willingly.
1: Uh, I don't disagree with with a lot of your criticisms. I think the film... Uh, maybe does tiptoe on the safe side a bit too uh, much for what if you wanted a warts and all biopic. And maybe one day we will get another film that shows the, uh, the darker side of Gandhi because he's a human being. Obviously, he was not a literal saint. Uh, but for me, having known virtually nothing about the man except what like pop culture has taught me. I took to the film like a a big, satisfying meal. I think we'll get into this in our year-end wrap-up a little more because it did remarkably well at the Oscars, but I think it's a very good film. There are Best Picture winners that I have major problems with uh, out of Africa, but um, Gandhi is not one of them. I think it's a very good film.
0: Going from that movie to a movie where I'm fairly sure we're going to be united on our critical take, we are looking at a remake of a French comedy by... Francis Weber, the bad idea machine that powered the engine of 80s comedy. In this case, remade by Richard Donner, starring Richard Pryor and Jackie Gleason. Yes, that's right, folks. Buckle up. It's time for the toy.
2: What do you buy for the boy who has everything? Richard Pryor. Wrap him up. Are you crazy? He's waterproof. (laughs) Shotproof. Bullproof and living proof that every toy has its price. $3,000. But every man
1: has his limits. Richard Pryor is the toy. Hey, Mom, we want to go see a movie tonight.
0: Okay, Uh, what would you like to go see?
1: There's this movie with Richard Pryor, and he's a black man who gets bought by a rich white man for his spoiled rotten kid. Can we see that?
0: Holy crap, find your shoes. Let me (laughs) tell you something right
1: now. This movie is such shit. You would have to be like a master satirist like Mike Judge, and you'd probably want to be a person of color. And you could turn this premise into a great social commentary, dark comedy. But as much as I love Richard Donner, Superman, the Goonies, lots of good movies. Boy, is he out of his
0: fucking element in this movie. I think this is a great movie to talk about precisely because... Richard Donner is a guy whose heart is clearly in the right place. All you need to do is pay attention to the way Donner interacted with social issues over the course of the late 80s, all the way into the 90s, the way he's lived his actual life. If you go look back at Scrooge, Scrooge is you know silly Christmas comedy based on Christmas Carol, and yet there's anti-apartheid material all over that movie, and it's because that was on Donner's mind, and it was urgent to him at the time, and it's the reason that the bad guys in Lethal Weapon 2 are who the bad guys are in that movie. Donner really started to, to walk the walk, and he really wanted to affect some change, and he's a guy who I think meant it his whole life. I don't think it came to him late. This movie is thumpingly heart-stoppingly racist. I don't believe Richard Donner is. But the movie, the movie is filthy. And the movie is filthy about everybody. What it really is, is classist. And it's trying to be a movie about class, dismantling class. The whole anytime
1: money is brought up, it's very gross. It's very unseemly and and uncomfortable. The, the, The screenplay tries to tack on these morality lessons. Of course, Richard Pryor is a good guy who teaches the spoiled, rotten kid, don't judge people by their, by how they look or where they're from or their skin, but the toy is based on a movie in which the toy was not black. It was a white guy. If you can't figure out why turning this character into a black guy and then not having the, the smarts to make the right, dark, insightful jokes about this. I mean, it is not, To be played as a straight farce. This is to be
0: played as a scathing, angry satire. Well, and this is the difference between if Richard Pryor was in charge of the material that he was in or if Richard Pryor is just hired to show up and do things. Clearly, when he writes something, it's blazing saddles. And when he is just paid to be somewhere, it's the toy. It's so syrupy in terms of the stuff between him and the kid, and it gets syrupy so fast. They don't deal with the unusual nature of the relationship where he and this kid are running around in their underwear all the time. And Jackie Gleason, who I think is a terrific, unbelievable titan of a comedy performer, wasted utterly with slow burns that aren't funny. Basically, his role is to stand still for reaction shots while we cut to second unit shit. It's just brutally not funny.
1: One of my least favorite things about comedies, and it happens a lot, is when a movie is like knee deep in ugly stuff. More often than not, it's like puerile sex jokes or fart jokes or really broad comedy. And then somebody realizes as we get towards Act Three, oh, if we don't throw in two or three scenes of alleged emotion, then the audience won't know what to do. I absolutely detest it. I love Richard Pryor. I think this might be the worst movie he's ever been in.
0: And it exemplifies to me how disrespected he was. So, yeah, it is it is a movie where uh, if I were involved with it, I would hope that it never sees the light of day again. And imagine now that you're Richard Pryor. This is the movie you have out in theaters and you turn around and you see Eddie Murphy in 48 hours. That had to be a sobering wake up call.
1: Now we go from one difficult choice to another. <laughs> what? <laughs> Meryl Streep and Kevin Klein. <laughs> Sophie's choice.
0: I, I feel like I'm gonna get whiplash. Like I like I'm actually gonna get hurt from that uh, from that transition there. Sophie, how
3: can anyone imagine that he knows her beyond the
2: innocent, the romantic, the sensual, and the unthinkable? There are secrets we have yet to imagine. One of them
1: is Sophie's Choice. I want people to know that Drew put these movies in order. He (laughs) wanted us to go Trail of the Pink Panther, Best Friends, Gandhi, the toy, Sophie's Choice. So if we're laughing at Sophie's Choice, it's not that we're laughing at Sophie's Choice. It's the fucking cinematic whiplash
0: that we're dealing with right now. But here's the thing. If you're at a Megaplex in 1982... Those are your choices. And I find this next run of stuff amazing as a lineup of this was all playing at the same time. So, yes, you could have gone to see the toy. Hopefully you did not. Hopefully, instead, you chose to go see the latest film from Alan J. Pakula, which is, of course, Sophie's Choice.
1: If all you know of this film is the infamous horrific choice, you owe it to yourself to revisit or, or visit this movie.
0: Isn't that also kind of like if if all you know about The Sixth Sense is that Bruce Willis is a ghost? Yeah. It's a love triangle involving Meryl Streep
1: and her troubled husband, Kevin Kline, and uh, the writer they become friendly with, as played by Peter McNichol. It's the the various relationships, how these three characters bounce off each other and how their pasts uh, come come to light.
0: It's Peter McNichols' film. That's the thing that I don't think – I think if you only know the film by reputation, you might think it's Meryl Streep's movie. She's a supporting character. It's very much his film. As he bounces off these two characters, he meets and he's he's like a Southern writer and he wants to be a novelist. And so the entire thing is he runs into these two super colorful characters that he's watching from the outside. Then gradually, little by little, he becomes part of their life. They become part of his. And that's when he starts to peel that onion and he starts to figure out why these people keep blowing up. And as a screen debut, you know, you got to remember that Kevin Klein had been in that giant Joseph Papp on Broadway Pirates of Penzance, that had become such a monster hit. And so he was suddenly this celebrated, oh my God, we got to find movies for him. Well, this is it. This is the movie they found for him first that they cast him in. And as a debut, wow, holy shit. Kevin Klein kind of hit the screen uh, on fire, didn't he? He's fantastic.
1: Sophie's Choices comes from the remarkably reliable late director, uh, Alan J. Pakula. Uh, we'll see more of him throughout the 80s we did cover rollover which was not very good and dream lover actually his 80s were not that good but he did do presumed innocent in 1990 and that's a damn good movie this is another one of those movies that earns that reputation this is a beautiful movie it's very somber and slow but it, it's gorgeous to look at it's one of those movies that you think will bore you because it's just three characters talking with some flashbacks and you know some torrid uh, affairs and whatnot it But it really sucks you in by the time you get to the infamous choice, as mentioned in the title. It's
0: heart wrenching, not universally beloved when it came out. I just read Pauline Kale's review. She flat out hated it and made fun of it. She was like, it is camp and it is ridiculous. She could not get past the tone of this thing. I am far more in your camp than I am in hers, but I do think the film's uneven. It's a movie where you've got really big theatrical performances and choices that are being made. And while I love that Kevin Klein is as Big and gigantic as he is, and so is Meryl Streep. She is playing this thing to the back wall. When she and Klein fight, and when they really start going for it, it's something else. It's physical, and the stuff between the three of them, as they kind of they're they're like puppies that just keep running into each other, and there is a, a love that happens between Klein and Mick Nichols character as well. I like all that stuff, but I also think it skates right on the edge of being ridiculous sometimes. I think it's the book, too. It helps because William Styron, he was from that Southern tradition of kind of overheated prose. And I I think some of that's in there. Maybe even a choice by Pecula to have gone a little bit hot like that with some of the big campier feel to it.
1: What we're learning today on 80s all over is that no matter how well regarded a film may be, that doesn't mean that Drew McQueen going to like it. <laughs>
0: I'll be clear. I do like Sophie's Choice a lot more than I like Gandhi. No, no.
1: What you said was I would rather watch Trail of the Pink Panther <laughs> than Sophie's Choice. <laughs>
0: Please put that on the poster. That's my new pull quote. You know, with Sophie's Choice, the thing that you have to put in context is how little Holocaust drama there had been and how relatively new it was to show images like the sequences where they're inside the camps.
1: Very true. It's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. But, yeah, in the early 80s, it was still something that was
0: more often than not implied. And 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 I think Meryl Streep fought for this role. This was a role she wanted. And when you see the physical work she does, the the weight she loses and the the way she's transformed in the camps, there's a reason that she had already become somebody who every director was trying to figure out how to work with. Now, what's crazy is this month, we're going to see who her primary competition was at that time. They both have two movies out this month. So we've got Sophie's Choice, and then we've got our next movie. Also starring Miss Streep. As is often the
1: case in the 1980s, we talk about interesting directors who make weak movies, and those films are the ones that are never discussed. When we talk about Robert Benton, we mention films like Kramer vs. Kramer and Places in the Heart. But we very rarely discuss Still of the Night The Psychiatrist, The Patient, The Romantic Thriller of the Year,
3: Still of the Night, The Secret. Who's that? The obsession. Still of the night. Vainum had a dream. This house was in the
2: dream, and so was the person who killed him. Roy Scheider, Meryl Streep.
3: Still of the night. A solid stab of suspense. Gene Shalit. NBC rated PG. Starts everywhere Friday.
1: In my research for this title, I discovered in an interview that when somebody asked Meryl Streep, "Are there any films you have been in that you don't like?" She quickly said the title of this film and then changed the subject.
0: If you don't know what movie we're talking about, Still a Night, it is basically Basic Instinct with Meryl Streep as Sharon Stone. This is an erotic thriller from the dawn of the genre that wishes it was Hitchcock and most assuredly is not.
1: Roy Scheider is who I love. But again, when he's disinterested in a film, God, man, can he be dry? He's a psychiatrist and he comes to realize that one of his patients uh, was killed a woman comes to his office and says, would you be willing to lie for me for something? And he does. And then it just gets deeper and deeper and stupider and
0: boring. Here's the weirdest part of this double feature. The guy who gets killed, who was having the affair with Meryl Streep, is the voiceover narrator of Sophie's Choice. What? But that is crazy, though, that it's the same dude.
1: Still the Night is a perfectly... I guess, watchable $11.30 million movie on ABC, like that kind of movie that you would nod off to at night. In 2018, when you can watch almost any movie in the world at any point, unless you're a huge fan of Scheider and or Meryl Streep, I would not recommend digging this one up. It's just dull and very conventional.
0: It was called Stab when it was in production, and that was the name that it was originally uh, publicized under. And it got delayed and pushed back and moved, and there was a long period of time that Stab was rumored to be coming out. So I'm guessing the reason it finally came out this month is because Sophie's Choice was on everybody's radar and everybody in town knew what it was about to be. And they wanted to, okay, we've got this dog. Let's just pow. There we go. It's out in theaters at the same time. Maybe people will get weirdly confused and they'll go see ours. And do you think it was just dumped as a dog? I guess it was. They had to, it was sitting on a shelf for a long
1: time. I don't like to ascribe these kind of things, but it just really feels like everybody was like, it's a paycheck. Let's just bang through this and get it done. Uh, And now we move to a strange Romantic comedy that I had a weird Affinity for when I was a kid And I wish that I had kept it that way Let us discuss Kiss Me Goodbye
3: Rupert I love you I love you
1: too, Kay Kay can't
2: decide whom she loves most Rupert, her fiancé Or Jolly, her husband
0: Certain things about both of them I like Together they make
2: the perfect man Sally Field Are you listening? I'm listening are you having your period? James Kahn. I guess I've sort of complicated things, huh? And Jeff Bridges. Okay, if I let you on alone like this, they're gonna lock you up.
1: In Kiss Me, goodbye. This is a weirdly misshapen rom-com based on the 1976 Brazilian film Dona Flor and her two husbands. James Kahn plays a lovable ghost who haunts his widow, she's Sally Field, and gets in the way while she tries to romance a weirdly boring Jeff Bridges lovable i do not think that word means what you think it means he's supposed to be wacky and eccentric he's the worst person alive dude he's the worst person dead if you would just switch the two roles let jeff bridges play the ghost let james conne play the kind of clueless new husband or new boyfriend
0: that works better right james Con spends a lot of time tap dancing in this movie it's insufferable i don't know that i've ever wanted to punch a film character quite as instantly as i wanted to punch him here now like you i like this as a kid I'm baffled as to why. I know I saw it in a theater, and that may have been part of it. It may just have been as easy as, hey, I saw this in a theater. It's good. Because I think sometimes as a kid, I did that. I was just happy to have gone to a movie theater and had that afternoon out. And I remember that I saw it again on home video and liked it, and that I held on to that impression of it. There was a
1: period in, like, 83 where if you turned on HBO... 70% chance you were seeing this movie.
0: (laughs) Now, here's what blows my mind as an adult. This is the same director as To Kill a Mockingbird. Mind-boggling.
1: Now, uh, Sally Field was nominated for a Golden Globe. Uh, Because they are
0: bastions of integrity.
1: Yeah, Robert Mulligan made some very good films. This is not one of them. Oh, this will be fun. You know, I settled on the couch. I had a burger. I was like cat curled up next to me, fell asleep. I'm like, I'm going to watch this goofy rom-com from 1982. And I I remember liking it. I, I have a feeling we might get some gripes on this one. I think Kiss Me
0: Goodbye has some fans out there. <laughs> they haven't seen it in a while then this is one where i dare you if you think you remember this film fondly it ain't heaven can wait folks it's just not
1: now let's move on to a film i think we're going to agree on the drop dead ass chick fucking fantastic david mamet sydney lumet paul newman collaboration the verdict
2: I can win it. I can win this case. One of the finest pictures of the year. Paul Newman is extraordinary. NBC TV. They killed her. A certain Oscar contender in the most powerful movie in recent memory. CBS TV. I can subpoena you now. Paul Newman, guilty of one of his best performances ever. ABC TV. Newman is brilliant. Time Magazine. I'm going up there. I'm going to try it. I'm going to let the jury decide. The Verdict.
0: Rated R. Now playing at a selected theater near you. This is one of the best films we've talked about on the podcast, Full Stop.
1: Without question, it's brilliantly written by David Mamet. By the time he became the stylized Mamet that, you know, people like to make fun of because they admire him in some ways or don't like him, whatever. If you want to talk just pure, hard-boiled, no bullshit, ass-kick dialogue, this
0: movie is laden. And this is a script that, like Seven, an early draft was the draft that got people excited. And then they did a shitload of drafts that were all wrong. When a filmmaker finally came on and said, I'm making the movie and went through all the drafts, they went right back to the beginning and they went back to that first thing that had gotten people interested And David Mamet's script was first.
1: It's one of the best courtroom dramas. And I want to say courtroom thrillers because it's a very intense and suspenseful movie. But it's even better as a character study. And if I were to tell you, the plot is about a shady lawyer who gets a chance at redemption with a very high profile, very important case. That would be like, yes, yeah, Scott, that sounds like every lawyer movie ever made. OK, well, A, this was 1982. So at that point, it wasn't every lawyer ever made. But even
0: if it was, it's still one of the best examples of that story. I love the moment right at the beginning when he pours himself the shot and there's too much. and He has to lean forward to drink it without picking it up and gets his nose in his shot. Man, if you don't know who that guy is by the time he's done just having that drink. And that is what's so great about Newman here is as great as the dialogue is, as great as the structure is. Mamet and Lumet give Newman all these little moments to just perform, to just be Paul Newman. I would say this is one of the best movies of the 70s. It just happens to have been made in 1982. But is it that 70s style of filmmaking?
1: If you know the name Sidney Lumet and you've only seen a handful of his movies, The Verdict is one of those perfect films where you could watch The Verdict, fall in love with Sidney Lumet, and then either work backwards towards like Dog Day Afternoon, or Clute, or Move
0: Forwards. There's two bits of visual storytelling that I adore here. There's the the one in the hospital room where he goes to see the patient for the first time, and he takes the Polaroids of her. He sets the two Polaroids on the bed. Lumet just gets right above them. And for about 90 seconds, we just stay on the Polaroids as they develop. And all we hear is that breathing tube. It's a remarkable, long, long, long moment to hold. And then what's great is when we cut back and you've seen just in his body language and his face that newman's made his choice god i get chills thinking about how effective that is and
1: what i love about it drew is that it's not just is a shady lawyer who's offered a chance to do something right he's chasing another big case and then gradually starts to realize oh wait if i go through with this i'm the good guy because we don't often like seek our own chances at redemption a lot of times they're thrust on us and we get to decide that's what's so great about it. It's not that he just flips the switch and says, I'm going to be a good guy. It's that the
0: circumstances around him compel him to be a good guy, a good oh, person. Yeah. You see that conscience start to grow and you see how uncomfortable it is. The other piece, and if you want to see a, a perfect example of where the writer is important, the director is important, your cinematographer is important, and your actor is important, and they all have to do exactly the right thing at the same time to make something work, look at the moment where the verdict is read. Because it is the camera move. It is Lumet's decision for how to reveal Newman's face. It's Newman, and it's what's being read at the same time. It is all of it working in concert. And that moment, if it doesn't flatten you, I don't know what movie you've been watching because it's as perfect an example of we've seen a million movies in courtrooms where the verdict is supposed to be a big deal. But how do you make the audience feel the same thing those people on screen do? You do it like the verdict does. It was
1: nominated for five Oscars. I
0: don't think it won any.
1: Insane! Uh, Charlotte Rampling, James Mason, Jack Warden, uh, Andre Barkoviak's cinematography. It is unbelievable. The movie is looks like it was built out of mahogany.
0: There are just a few movies in this decade. To Live and Die in LA is one of them. This is one of them. There's a couple of others where there is a choice that's made at the end of the film about how you leave somebody or how you wrap something up. It's so cold-blooded that you can't believe a filmmaker ever convinced the studio to let it happen. It's crazy that the verdict makes you feel as good as it does because the last three seconds of this are serial killer ice cold. Oh, it's so good.
1: So good, man. Now we move from a grown-ups movie for grown-ups to a family movie for grown-ups. That's right. (laughs) It's Jim Henson's classic cult classic maybe but still a classic the dark crystal
2: in a mystical world of good and evil in a wondrous realm of fantasy and adventure journey to another time another place Join in the struggle to possess the dark crystal.
0: Brittany PG starts bright at a theater near you. Boy, they aren't kidding with that dark, are they?
1: No, man. And, you know, gotta give them credit because it's like we're making millions by making colorful puppets do puns. No, I want to turn these puppets into something slightly darker and something more ominous and more fantasy oriented. But, why can't we just make them a little bit lighter, a little bit darker? No, that's not what I, I mean. That's
0: brave, you know? By the way, I want to I say this is pretty groovy. I just went to open the, uh, the film's IMDb page so that I could just have some of the cast names in front of me. And when I typed it into Google, just the Dark Crystal, the first thing that came up are showtimes because it is in theaters uh, the weekend of the February 25th through the 28th in one of those nationwide things. That's pretty groovy, man, that Dark Crystal's playing again. Didn't grow up
1: madly in love with it. And then I revisited it for the show. I've probably seen it two or three times over the years and always dazzled by the effects, but it never really uh, hit me on any kind of an emotional or, or gut level. But last week, it sure did. I, I really
0: think it works better for adults. I truly do. This film is the good Tron. This is the movie that is all style with almost nothing underneath that works because of the density of the world and because of the sincerity of the world building. And because you feel like it was important to the filmmaker to make this truly alternate experience plot wise, it is, Oh, I've made fun of films with better scripts than this. It is your
1: fairly standard Tolkien type quest story.
0: Yeah. And, and there's a lot of it that doesn't necessarily track or make sense. And there's a lot of it that you get the feeling they were just kind of cutting to the bone as they kind of uh, finished the film and, there was a lot of post-production work on this where they tried to figure out how the fuck to make it actually play for audiences because the choices to go with languages that weren't English and the choices to deal with this alien world as if it were totally alien, those are really cool, smart sort of fantasy ideas, but they also leave kids going, Mommy, what's happening out loud every 15 seconds? This
1: movie contains some of the best practical puppetry and creature creation you will ever see. It is astonishing the amount of work that went into these. Go look at some pictures of these puppets now and you will be astonished at the artistry of these creatures. They're not just aesthetically impressive, they they are actually able to emote.
0: The scale of the world is what is so insane to me. It is so big and there's when they've got those like the wind things that they're running on with the big stilt legs and the it's gorgeous and you got to imagine they just went to another planet to shoot it because it looks like it's another planet. There's something slightly creepy in an innocent way, not not
1: scary, but there's something slightly misshapen or a little sad sack
0: about these creations. I showed this one to the boys when they were young and Toshi wanted to see it for a while. He finally was able to articulate that he wanted to see it. And then his little brother insisted on being in the room and we traumatized Alan. It messed. Oh,
1: there's stuff in like even labyrinth where, where some of the little creatures all gather around the baby. And you're like, one of those creatures by itself is kind of cool and beautiful, but wait, like if 10 of them were coming at you, they're creepy (laughs) in a good way. They're creepy.
0: The film casts a spell, and it really ultimately is this experience that feels like a dream after you watch it, and I I think works as pure film fantasy language. I will never think it's a good script. As the older I get, the more astonished I am that it exists.
1: What would you put the age range at? You know, you let your, your boys see stuff when they're young, but for normal
0: parents, would you put this at 10, 8, 12? I would say 10 and up. Let's put it this way. If you're showing your child stuff like Miyazaki, which I always recommend as an entry point because there's no villains, there's no evil, it's it's the world is presented as a natural place. And I think that that's a really lovely thing for younger viewers. I think when you're ready to make the step into good versus evil movies with conflict and some scares, I think this is a great place to start. I don't think it's a movie you have to hold until they're much older. When do I think they will really start to love it? I think as they live with it for a little while. I don't think it's a movie that kids love on at first.
1: I'm glad that The Dark Crystal held up for me. And let us move on to a film that I had never seen. It kind of blew me away. And I'd like to tell a little story about Jessica Lange and her film, Francis.
3: Hers is one of Hollywood's most shocking real life stories. Francis Farmer was always unconservative. Occupation. Okay. She became a film star of the thirties in spite of herself. But Frances wouldn't conform to the ideals of Hollywood. She fought their oh, hypocrisy. I can't tell you how
2: proud I am to meet you. Both
3: she challenged their Just rules. A far, it's a thing is a joke. She had her own form of escape. They didn't approve, so they had her committed. The rehabilitation was degrading, cruel, and painful, but she wouldn't give in. Frances, starring Jessica Lange, a powerful and harrowing story of a woman
1: who dared to be different. Got
3: no right.
1: got no right. Jessica Lange's commitment; she is stunning in this movie. Several years earlier, she had starred in Dano De, De Laurentiis's uh, adaptation of King Kong. Some people like her performance, some people don't, but generally it was considered very campy and goofy and not all that well regarded. By many accounts, she took that criticism to heart, took uh, two, three years off and really worked her ass off. Frances was, I believe, had to have been a shocking revelation for film people, film buffs and film critics when she came back with this movie and She is now legitimately a world-class actor, and she is stunningly good in this movie.
0: Well, it was like a bomb went off that Christmas because of this and the next film, and that back-to-back, I think, was a very firm announcement that she was the real deal.
1: And it just makes me so happy, because not only do I just like Jessica Lange as an actor, but there are so many times an actress is not great in a big movie, and then she is like relegated to B-movies or... You never hear from her again. She, you know, she stars in five more movies and we end up talking about her on a podcast 30 years later. I just love the fact that she not only came back and built a career, but she came back with a boot to the door.
0: <laughs> I'm back, fuckers. The year before this, she'd done Postman Always Drinks Twice, which we talked about. And it was clear that directors were starting to notice that the buzz was she's the real deal. But you're right. This was the nuclear announcement that uh, she is as good as it gets and uh she's going to attack roles when you give them to her and Frances farmer was a hell of a role to attack it's what's crazy is this film feels like it could be made this year she was just a person who didn't take shit
1: and gradually that turned into she's difficult to she's psycho to she's literally insane like that's what they did to her
0: that's why i think this movie if it was made right now uh, okay so talking about gandhi again um this is a movie where there's stuff that is in this movie that has become part of her legend, like lobotomization and which isn't true, but they are part of her legend and they are part of what people have responded to and you know she has been canonized in a way uh Kurt Cobain wrote about her i mean hell, he named his daughter after her, and part of that was the book Shadowland, and then this movie that included those details. But that's fine. And here's why. Because I think Francis Farmer was emblematic of what Hollywood did to women that it didn't know what to do with. And the reason it didn't know what to do with them was because they didn't take their shit. Francis Farmer was destroyed by that system. There's a scene in this movie where you see one of the studio execs. and He picks up the phone and he goes, give me some reporters. Make sure Luella Parsons is one of them.
1: Oh, that guy. I love the bit where she's walking through the studio lot with him. And he's just giving her the rundown on Look, you're a smart girl. I'm not going to talk down to you. This is your job. You let them do their
0: job. And part of the reason he resents her is clearly because she doesn't put out, because she doesn't have sex with him as well. And their sexual currency is a big part of this movie and what it's worth and how it's used and how women are punished for not giving it to the person that wants it. And that's where this feels incredibly fresh and where the idea of making Francis emblematic is okay with me. I think this movie works as this is what Hollywood does to women, period. Francis Farmer is the woman in this case. All the heightened stuff, all of the exaggeration that exists in this is drawn from what actually went on in that town. And as we've learned, this movie still doesn't play as dark as it really gets.
1: Yeah, yeah, Francis is a very good film. Again, it's long, it, it's very sobering, but it's not only fascinating to look at the, the decadence and the immorality, the shitty ways of early Hollywood, but uh, it's also just very impressive in a technical sense. It's very...
0: Well, she and Kim Stanley are great together. How good is Kim Stanley's as mom? Oh,
1: God. Whew. There are two or three scenes where I like, turn the TV off for a second and just take a break. And now we close the month down with another Films starring Jessica Lange, although she is not a lead for this film. She won Best Supporting Actress, I believe.
0: Uh, You talk about the weird nominations because Francis got nominated her performance in that and her performance in this and couldn't be more different, both in terms of what she's doing for the film itself, but just what human being she seems to be in these two movies. It really is a case of proving that she had range that nobody expected and that she could do it all. This is the month of Jessica Lang, and we will close it
1: down with the very funny Tootsie.
0: But I didn't know I was going to be working for the rest of my
2: life as a woman.
1: When you have to go this far. It is just for the money, isn't it? It's not just so
3: you can wear these little outfits. To get this big.
2: I'd like to make her look a little more attractive. How far can you pull
3: back? How do you feel about Cleveland? Life can get very Uh, crazy. I don't want to hurt (laughs) you. All right, just shut your mouth right now. I think we're getting into a weird area here. Dustin Hoffman is Tootsie, rated PG. Starts Friday
1: at a theater near you. Now, Drew, before we talk about this movie, I want to ask you a question. Sure. Do you think that men dressing up as women is inherently funny? No.
0: Nor do I. I having said that, I still kind of like Tootsie. I think Tootsie's terrific. And I think Tootsie's terrific because. It is as much about acting as it is about anything. It is about men and women. It is about the way gender relationships were starting to evolve in the late 70s, early 80s, as the sexual revolution cooled down and we all started to have to think about what we were doing. Uh, One of my favorite things about this film... Is that Sidney Pollack, the director of the movie, who is also one of the greatest character actors of all time and is terrific here, playing uh, Michael Dorsey's agent. Oh, God. You were playing a tomato. As a director, what he's doing is the development process for this movie was a nightmare. Dustin Hoffman was a nightmare. The whole first 40 minutes of this film feel like Sidney Pollack making a movie about what a fucking pain in the ass Dustin Hoffman is. And it's the funniest movie I've ever seen with Dustin Hoffman in it. He is terrific. That whole thing feels like it's built out of another movie's worth of material. Yeah. This movie does a good job of convincing you why he would do it. There's literally no other option. If he wants to work, this is the choice he's going to make. And it is also he views it as an acting challenge. Why wouldn't this guy do that? And uh, did you know that the who was supposed to play the
1: Sydney Pollack role? I'll give you a hint. He's in this movie, and he's our favorite actor.
0: Dabney Coleman is first rate. He is first rate.
1: Dabney Coleman, Coleman was supposed to play the Sidney Pollack role. And, uh, he is first, first rate.
0: rate. He's so good, by the way, is the director here. This is a terrific Dabney Coleman performance and a great example of using a character actor for the weight that they've already garnered through other roles. Because the moment he shows up, your radar goes off. Okay, he's going to be a handful. How is he going to bounce off of Michael as Dorothy? Their head to head is terrific. Dude, tell me who the weak
1: link is in this ensemble. <laughs> Dustin Hoffman, Jessica Lang, Terry Garr, Dabney Coleman, Bill Murray, Charles Derning, Sidney Pollack. George Gaines is hilarious. George Gaines, known as Commandant Lassard from Police Academy,
0: a murderer in this movie. He just kills it. A, a pre star uh, Gina Davis. And every single joke she has to nail, she nails. This movie plays into a lot of the weird trends that we'd seen play out over the course of the year. First of all, it had some really interesting ideas about dynamics between men and women and conventional roles. And one of my favorite subplots in the movie is the way Charles Durning falls for Dustin Hoffman's character. There's a stretch of the movie where Dorothy responds. And while she never misleads him or tries to take him down a sexual path, he is legitimately flattered. Yeah. Legitimately flattered and also legitimately moved by this guy, by what he's gone through, by the loss of his wife, by the daughter that he's raised, by everything else. Like there, He responds to him.
1: It's so much harder to do it that way. Drew, imagine if they had just written Charles journey to be a lecherous pig.
0: Well, and in 1982, do you know how lucky we are? He's not like a screaming homophobe, like who then goes nuts, you know,
1: but it's harder to write him as sympathetic. That creates a conflict where you're like, good God, how are we going to
0: end this subplot? We don't want to humiliate a character who's actually sweet. And that's the high wire act. Then the character starts to walk is all the farce elements then become actually emotional stakes. And that is a great piece of writing. You know, this script went through 400 pairs of hands before it ended up in front of the camera. And it's one of the rare cases where I actually think that helped. You know what I focused on and I just love to death.
1: I love every single frame of Bill Murray's performance in this movie.
0: Oh, Bill Murray's awesome in this movie. It and is
1: just like so. he just said, I love this script. It's going to be a hit. Can I be his buddy? I only have four scenes. I don't care. I'm going to be in a giant movie next year. Can I just be in four scenes?
0: It's the best role you could have because all he has to do is show up and comment. He just has to walk through and make a perfect joke about what's happening in the film and then be gone for another 10 minutes.
1: It's like to me, that's like a testament to not only the movie, but to Bill Murray's ego. It didn't matter.
0: How good is Terry Garr in the film?
1: Oh, God. One of the most underrated treasures of the decade and and earlier. I, I just
0: man, when you single out George Gaines, you're not wrong. He, There's a character who could have easily been a joke and instead has this evolution where he goes from the lech on set to a, a guy who realizes I'm actually attracted to a woman my own age. Oh my God, I'm changing. And he has this evolution that happens in response to somebody who's not who he thinks. And it's lovely that they don't turn him back at the end or anything else. There's a real evolution. I think that character by the end of the movie is a better person simply for having bumped into Dorothy. So so you think this one thematically
1: and spiritually would, would make a good double feature with Victor Victoria?
0: Yeah. And this year, especially two great drag comedies, two comedies in which gender switching is done to not only comment on that character. but but to give them a chance to grow and perceive another gender from another perspective, they used it the right way. These are both really well-written movies to also this year have, you know, uh, John Lithgow playing his part. What a great capper to a year to have a farce, a comedy that is as smart and as grown up and as progressive about its attitude as this one is.
1: It's nice to see a film that, you know, half of me was like, oh, man, is totally going to be half full of stuff that I cringe at these days? A lot, some of it's a bit naive, but it's really written from a place of respect. It's not,
0: oh, it's funny because men don't have boobs and women are weird. Putting the bow on at the end where he talks about how be- being a woman made him a better man sounds very simple. And it. I'm pretty sure it was just written on an index card on the board from day one is the theme they're trying to get to. But they earn it because I, I genuinely think until you understand how men treat women, how they dismiss them, how, they, how the entire world shifts and bends in a different way around you. I don't think you can truly say that you get it. That's a thought process that you have to be pushed towards. It's not an easy one. His character stepping outside of his comfort zone and having to play this role is the most obvious way of doing this. And yet, they earn it. They manage to make that payoff when he finally says it feel like we got there with him.
1: This film was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. Fortunately, Jessica Lange was the winner. Uh, Unfortunately, this was the only one that it won. We'll cover this in the next episode, but Terry Garr also was nominated, so that makes me happy.
0: All right. Well, listen, guys, our next episode, as Scott just mentioned, is a very special one, because as we do at the end of every year, it is time for our best of episode. And when you're talking about the best of 82, you're talking about one of the very best of best ofs of the decade. So I want you guys to look forward to it as much as we are. I also want to say thank you to all of you who continue to be Patreon supporters. It is incredibly important that you support the podcast. And if you can't do it financially, which we totally understand, then you can do it by word of mouth. That is really where it helps the most. Rate and review the show on iTunes uh, or any podcast app that you can find and spread the word. Spread the episodes. Download your favorite one. Burn it on a disc. Give it to somebody at work. Play it in a car when you have somebody trapped. Do whatever you must. Uh, It's important. And we really appreciate the support you guys have given.
1: thank you guys so much uh we are very proud to have made it through 1982 we'll be back with the recap episode and then we will begin 1983 which i have often referred to as the worst movie year of my lifetime